TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Buffalo Zone, Ross Story, Editor-in-Chief, Dave Leventhal. Dave, good morning. Hey, good morning to you, too. Uh, it has been uh, another, uh, just another eventful week, and we have so much to bring up. I, I want to start with an issue that's going on here in Western New York uh, and, and around the country. You know, we're seeing these sanctuary cities, uh, New York City, Washington, D.C., uh, start to show signs of, hey, we've got enough asylum seekers, enough migrants. Uh, we need a stop of the flow from the southern border. Do I have that right? Oh, you, you very much have it right. And, uh, you know, I think what you're seeing, particularly in western New York now, is sort of the, the final stage of what really is a multi-level breakdown of a system that doesn't work and a system that hasn't worked for decades for all intents and purposes. And it, it's becoming acute in recent years because of the influx of migrants, not only over the uh, from Mexico, but from countries all over uh, the world, uh, both in South America, Central America, but Africa and other places. I mean, there's great need all across the world. And there are lots of people who are willing to quite literally risk their lives to come to the United States because things are just simply so bad where they're coming from. But, you know, this is a when I say it's a governmental breakdown, I mean, we're talking about multiple levels of government here. We're talking about the governments of the nations from which the migrants are traveling. We're talking about the state governments in border cities and in border towns where they simply just can't deal with the influx. We're talking about the state governments like in New York and Massachusetts and other places around the country, California, that uh, migrants are traveling to after they come over the border. And now we're talking about county governments and even municipal governments that are, are sort of right at the end who really don't have any preparations for 100 or 500 or 1,000 people coming to town, sometimes overnight, without any warning whatsoever. And how do you feed them? How do you shelter them? How do you help them? And, you know, it's it's sort of this kind of crashing together of, of two very real sensibilities and, and and valid points of view. You know, one, I mean, if, if you are, for example, of of the Christian faith, you, you've gone to church and you've heard from Genesis to Jeremiah to Job to John, you know, hey, the Bible teaches you to uh, help the traveler and the alien and the stranger and the neighbor and to have open arms for people who are in need, particularly if you are in a position to provide it. And then the other sensibility is, well, you can't have chaos. You can't have a situation where 
you are, are, are literally fearing for your life because there may be some not only bad apples, but very scary people uh, who are, are within, you know, what could be a, a wonderful group of people who just needs help uh, and, and you want to provide it, but yet you, you're, you're fearing for your own safety, uh, particularly if the government is not able to, uh, to provide you the confidence in the situation and that the situation is under control. So I, I forgot to mention, um, it, you know, one other element of the government, and that's the federal government. And really this is where, you know, the, the buck needs to stop, but yet hasn't. Uh, and, and there's no sense right now here in Washington, D.C., that there is going to be any movement for some sort of comprehensive answer, uh, comprehensive immigration reform, uh, or even kind of, you know, partial measures to get this under control in a way that's going to make the situation better quickly. That just doesn't seem to be the case at this point. You know, Dave, you, you, you took my next question uh, away from me there because, it, it, you know, here we're seeing Erie County say, please stop um, bringing these uh, migrants, these asylum seekers from New York City. Uh, but New York City needs someone to tell to stop. And, and it would seem like eventually the federal government needs to get involved. I mean, we see members of Senate, member, members of Congress go to the border, but we don't really see any kind of legislation on the floor or have any real chance of passing. Do I have that correct? You do. And, you know, these, uh, not not to put too sharp a point on it, but I will, you know, these are photo ops. And and there's nothing that materially is coming from that except an opportunity to talk about a particular political perspective. Uh, And and that's fine, but nothing is happening legislatively. Nothing is happening monetarily here in Washington, D.C. that is going to address the situation in its broadest, uh, most deep-seated sense. And Congress right now, as we speak, they're, they're not even in Washington, okay? Uh, they're back in their districts. Uh, there's a basically a five-week-long break that Congress is on right now, and we don't expect them back until after Labor Day. So whether it's the issue of immigration or any other issue that is playing out here in Washington, D.C., not the least of which is the funding of the federal government, and you're going to be hearing a, a lot more in September about a, another government shutdown, potentially again, too. None of that's getting dealt with at this moment because – Nobody's here to do the business of the people. And let's get to that, because not only are they taking a recess from Congress, apparently they're taking a recess from Hardline, uh, because we've now gone two weeks without being able to get uh, a member of Congress on. Um, How close are we, when they get back from this recess, how close are we to that funding uh, being up and facing the real threat of a government shutdown? And, Joe, I mean, the government shutdown threat is real. It has happened before. We we probably feel like this is Groundhog Day all over again in the sense that uh, it it could very well happen. And if the government does shut down, I mean, there are different ways for the government to shut down. There are partial shutdowns. There are full shutdowns. But it's never a good scene. And it's never something that is in terms of the functioning of the country and the operation of the government that – you want to see happen. And it ends up costing a lot of times more money than it ends up saving because you have to shut it down, start it back up again. People get paid after the fact. Uh, Congress may jump in and and say, oh, well, we're actually going to pay the employees who we didn't pay people. It's a mess. And and it's avoidable. It's an unforced error. And if Congress wants to get this done, they're going to have to do it in September or they're going to have to do something temporary and, you know, perhaps uh, kick the proverbial can down the road uh, two weeks or a month or two months or whatnot uh, 
have a uh, some some you know continuous funding at the levels that they're at right now, but that doesn't solve the the fundamental problem of hey you got you got to fund a government if you want a government you got to pay for it <laughs> and and they're not anywhere really close right now and they're going to have to scramble kind of very similar to what they did earlier this year with the uh, the debt ceiling deal and I wouldn't be shocked at all one bit one iota if they go right down to the wire and only finally pass something quite literally at the uh, 59th minute of the 11th hour and, and hammer out a deal then. But that's the way Congress works these days. And if I if I could write the script, we'll probably see a Biden-McCarthy meeting before this is all said and done, right? I mean, that's very likely. It wouldn't, wouldn't be surprising at all either. And the, the, the two sides are going to have to get together as, as much as they – loathe one another and, and love to bludgeon one another with political rhetoric. Uh, it, it's it, The way this works is that the two sides have to compromise and the two sides have to get together. And McCarthy and Biden, if, if there's been one glimmer flicker of bipartisanship uh, that we've seen this year that has resulted in something, it was uh, those two individuals that you just named uh, being able to come together with the debt ceiling debate and the debt ceiling fight and and ultimately reaching a point where they could compromise, even if some of uh, their partisan constituents on, on both sides were unhappy with the deal. That's the way politics works. This is a divided government, too. It's not like Republicans control both sides of the Senate and the House and, and or Democrats uh, control both the Senate and the House. No, one controls one and the other controls the other. So if you want to get anything done, yeah, even even in a crisis situation like this, you you got to have both sides buy into something, or else you have nothing. And since we're in the Capitol building, Dave, uh, talking about uh, Congress, let's let's stay there. Let's go to the Senate side of things. And uh, again, age is a thing. It doesn't matter if you look to the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. Uh, we've got Mitch McConnell a few weeks ago freezing up. Uh, we now have Diane Feinstein. Her age has really been under the microscope uh, after she gave a speech when she was supposed to vote, power of attorney given to her daughter. Uh, you know, Dave, all of this, my one question is, is this her final term in Senate? Has she said she will not run for another term? She, she has said, pardon me, that uh, she is not running for another term. Okay, so take her at her word, I suppose, uh, that she's not running. And, and she hasn't filed for re-election. There are other competitors on the Democratic side, including three current members of Congress who are running for that seat. So it, it seems like this is it. But we're having this conversation in August of 2023. And Diane Feinstein is going to be there ostensibly if she finishes out her term until January of 2025. So it's about a year and a half away. So we can fully expect that uh, this sort of subplot drama of the Democratic Party is going to continue to play out for many, many months to come. And, you know, she's a U.S. senator. She represents the state of California, the largest state population-wise in the country. I think it would be the seventh or eighth largest economy in the world if California was its own nation. And so this is not an insignificant position that she holds. She's not the you know, the dog catcher here of uh, some village in Nebraska. I, she's a U.S. senator. So, but there's, unlike many states, for example, that have provisions where you can recall a public official, uh, a governor, say, and, and we've seen this in her own state of California, 
there's nothing like that in the U.S. Senate or the U.S. House. You you elect somebody and they serve out their term unless they resign for all intents and purposes or they die in office. Uh, not to get too grim, but those are really the, the two main exits uh, unless you get you know kicked out, uh, <laughs> which never happens. And, and that's really about it. So she's going to be there for a while. And uh, there are a lot of Democrats in particular who very quietly would like to see her step aside and resign, but she is showing absolutely no interest or intention of doing anything of the sort at this point. I'll I'll tell you this. I I've, I know Adam Schiff is one of the people that's running for her seat um, in, in 24, and Corey Matthews, we've talked about this, is from Boy Meets World, uh, real name Ben Savage, is running for uh, Adam Schiff's congressional seat. So that that's why my focus, Dave, is on that that district because you know growing up with Corey Matthews, now to see him potentially be a, a congressman, I mean that's a turn of events right there. It, it it sure is. Uh, I think there is a Topanga, California, too, if I'm correct. Oh my gosh! Look at that. Come on now. Now we're uh, now we're talking. Um, <laughs> keeping it uh, with 2024, Dave, because I can't have you on the line without talking primaries and uh, what's going on. We'll start on the Republican side because. It's not a primary season without seeing everyone try to act uh, as normal as can be at the Iowa State Fair. And this weekend was no different, including former President Trump finally making an appearance, correct? He did make an appearance at the Iowa State Fair, which if if you're not at the Iowa State Fair and a presidential candidate, you might as well not be a presidential candidate. But lots of the uh, other Republican candidates, uh, i.e. those who are not named Donald Trump, were doing sort of the standard traditional fair of the Iowa State Fair. And that's meeting people and shaking hands and kissing babies and eating corn dogs. And if you've got kids, taking them on the rides and going to a couple of chats uh, that are set up by some of the, the state political leaders who are there. And, and Ron DeSantis was doing that. Some of the others were doing that. But Donald Trump decided to stylistically do it his own way, which should shock no one. And he flew in on his plane over the fair. Everyone could see him. He landed. He was there for just just a, a heartbeat, a blink of an eye. But, man, did he put on a show when he got there. So, And he really undercut Ron DeSantis in particular, who was also there at the same time, too. And uh, all the oxygen just uh, kind of came out of the, the fair and other corners and went straight to Donald Trump. And and Donald Trump was off and on his way and back in the plane. So, you know, it's, uh, it's sort of a little microcosm of the way that the whole race is running at this point on the Republican side, which is that Donald Trump is leading in every poll. He is nationally, at least. And he's leading in every poll at the state level in all of the early states, uh, although that, that's kind of an interesting discussion that we may, or may not want to have. But the bottom line is that despite all of his legal troubles, despite the fact that he has been indicted in three different venues uh, for uh, since March and we're preparing for a fourth in the state of Georgia sometime, uh, probably in the, the coming days or next couple of weeks, uh, that his popularity, at least among Republicans, is uh, just about as high as it's ever been. Now, again, it's August. A lot can change between now and January and February when the first votes are going to be cast in Iowa, as well as New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada going into Super Tuesday come March. But at this point in time, Donald Trump is uh, probably feeling about as good, politically speaking, about life as uh, he could expect to feel. 
You know, and again, maybe, Dave, this is just uh, I'm letting some of my uh, opinions get in the way, but I am personally really surprised that Ron DeSantis is kind of just staying in the teens or maybe even the early 20%, uh, depending on the state. Is that surprise uh, common throughout the Republican Party, or am I an outlier? Uh, so I might go a step beyond that to say that uh, I think there's a question as to whether Ron DeSantis, uh, whether he'll be staying in the race. Uh, if things continue going in the direction that they're going in, at some point you, you're going to have to you know, think back to 2016. You're going to have to pull a Scott Walker here. And you, you might have been the guy who seemed ascendant early on, but flamed out and, and you just you, you, you take your ball and you go home. And that's not saying that that will happen. And again, we have a lot of time and Ron DeSantis could yet bring it around. But he's he's, quote unquote, reset his campaign twice, really, in the past month. And his poll numbers have gotten no better. He seems to be kind of flailing and struggling on the campaign trail. And he has not been able to answer the most basic question of all, which is, why truly are you running? What, what, do, you, what do you offer that, that is better and that's different than Donald Trump? And, and why should we, the voters on the Republican side, why should we buy that? Why should we support that instead of what we already know to be the, the commodity that won the election, if you will, in 2016? And so that's a question I suspect he's going to have to address in a very short period of time on the debate stage when Republicans and have their first debate coming up against each other. Donald Trump is still not said whether he's going to be on that stage or not. So it could it could involve him or not involve him, but it will involve him regardless, even if he's not physically there. But Ron DeSantis, he's been able to have no answer to Donald Trump at this point. So. Uh, he will continue to get the questions until he does as to, well, all right, well, why, what, why are you doing this? What, wh- where are you going with your campaign? And uh, that, that's going to be looming over him until uh, some point in the future or not, for that matter, Joe. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. It's better over here. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. A left 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. If your day sounds like... We need the report ASAP. You deserve Medella. If you've persevered through... You deserve this rich golden lager with a crisp but refreshing taste. Or if you overcame. Two more reps, two more. You deserve this ice cold reward. Modelo, the markable fighter. Drink responsibly, beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. 
Dave, this might seem like a just a random question, but I'm going to throw it out there because I, you know, I, I, I've as you know this because every time we've talked, I brought up the primary since I think um, Joe Biden was first, you know, put into office. I've been talking about the 24 primaries. Um, looking at the state of Virginia, you know, Virginia used to be a purple state. Now it's pretty much a solid blue state with a Republican governor. And I'm looking at the polling in Virginia. Now, if it was Biden-Trump, Biden would win. DeSantis-Biden, it's a dead heat. If it was Yunkin and Biden, Glenn Yunkin would, would beat Joe Biden, according to this VCU poll. It seems like Glenn Yunkin, a Republican, is popular in a blue state. Has the Republican Party looked or has Glenn Yunkin considered being a late entry into the primary? Yes, and he was one of the names I was getting bandied about uh, when we were talking a year ago. And, oh, who's going to get in the race? And we know Trump's getting in, but who else is going to run against him? Glenn Youngkin was definitely at the the top of, of that list among the the Washington chattering class <laughs> and, and, and elsewhere, too. But he was somebody who was able to win in a state that has been going uh, trending against Republicans, at least over the past few years, and yet pulled out a massive victory and uh, has been a, a very you know, prominent presence uh, in that state ever since he was elected governor a couple of years ago. And but we're now kind of opening up the question of, well, OK, why why would Glenn Youngkin get in? What what would cause him to get in? Uh, and I don't think anyone, at least at this point, sees him just getting in. Uh, there, there would have to be a overwhelming, compelling reason for him to get in. And, and really, the only reason that would be is if Donald Trump's legal troubles got so bad, so fast, coinciding with the primary process, that it was somehow untenable for the Republican Party to support Donald Trump as their nominee. Then we're talking about just a, a utter you know, disaster that the Republican Party would have to, to deal with, uh, an infighting, a political civil war, put in whatever imagery you would want. And they would need, in essence, some sort of bailout candidate, somebody who would be able to step in very quickly, who th- there could be some semblance of consensus around some level of popularity, somebody to to be that backup quarterback who was going to be able to step in for the starter who had fallen. And Glenn Youngkin seems to be that name that just keeps coming up and up again. But we're talking about a a number of different things in a a series of of really bad things for the Republican Party and for Donald Trump to happen in order, I think, to, to get to that point, which could very well be not this year in 2023, but definitely next year in 2024. And that's also assuming that, one of these other candidates who's running, whether it's Nikki Haley or Tim Scott or, uh, you know, probably not Mike Pence, but he's in the mix, too, along with about 10 other candidates, just never get any traction of, of any note. I would note that we talked about national polls, Joe. I do pay attention to these state polls. Look at the polls in Iowa. Look at the polls in New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada, because they look a little bit different and in some cases a good bit different than the national polls on the Republican side. Chris Christie right now is either number three or number two in New Hampshire polls. You know, New Hampshire is weird. It always is. And and it's fun to watch because candidates who might not be the odds-on leading national candidate can get some real serious traction there. Chris Christie has actually broken through as an anti-Trump candidate. Is he going to win? Well, you know, it seems unlikely, but 
Nobody thought Pat Buchanan was going to win in the 1990s when he did and so on and so forth. So, you know, we've got some examples of New Hampshire being sort of this idiosyncratic primary state where strange, odd, bizarro things can happen. So, you know, there's a possibility Donald Trump may actually have some real competition in individual states, even if overall in the nation he doesn't have much competition at all. And I want to get to you mentioned Georgia uh, and I want to get to that, but one more thing on Glenn Youngkin, Dave, because I just I find it, you know, in 2023, right? Obviously, uh, Ron DeSantis is popular in Florida, but let's be honest, Florida's become a pretty red state. To be a popular governor with a close to 50 percent approval rating in a blue state as a Republican in 2023, or or as a Democrat in, in a red state, um, I mean that does seem very rare and very unlikely. Uh, and you're close to Virginia. How How is Glenn Youngkin getting close to 50 percent approval rating in a blue state? Well, he's he's attracted uh, independents uh, and independents who are either willing to go blue or red, depending on the candidate and focus less on party and more on candidate. That's not a lot of voters overall, but it's enough when things are really, really tight and really close to make a, a difference and, and to provide a margin a victory, potentially, if you do other things right, to win an election. And also to independents who are, you know, not may lean more conservative, so are inclined to vote Republican, but may not vote at all. Uh, so kind of two classes of independents who who really made a big difference uh, for, for Glenn Youngkin in particular. And, you know, not going to rehash all the reasons why he won, but I, I think you know, those are two prominent ones, let, let us say. And as is a governor, he's retained at least some decent level of overall popularity in that state, even if hardcore Democrats do not like him and will never support him and never like him. He he has been, I think, by most measures, a, a fairly effective governor. Um, he's not really in the mold of, for example, a Larry Hogan, who was the governor of of Maryland, just north of here, across the street from, from where I live here in D.C., uh, who stepped down uh, because of term limits recently, but was up around 70 percent, 70 plus percent uh, in the popularity column in a state that was very blue. Maryland is a very blue state, uh, definitely trends liberal as opposed to conservative. So, you know, it's possible. It's rare in the country these days. But I think both Glenn Youngkin and Larry Hogan in different ways provide a model for a Republican executive who is not only pretty popular among Republicans, of course, but definitely is attractive to independents and even can be tolerated by some Democrats. All right, Dave, Georgia, we we mentioned it a few minutes ago, but Georgia and Trump. Now, I feel like this was going to break, you know, a month ago because I've heard so much talk about it. But we are getting closer now to a possible fourth indictment for the former president. Yeah, it, it, Joe, it seems in, inevitable at this point that, that the indictments will indictments will come down in Georgia. There's going to be a grand jury that's re, kind of providing the final review of the evidence. Uh, there is going to be testimony that's taken by people who have uh, been subpoenaed to appear before this grand jury. This is not the investigative stage, uh, which was separate and, and, of course, related, but different from what we're talking about now. But but the end game seems afoot. So whether we're talking days or whether we're talking a couple more weeks, it does seem that this uh, all, all the stars are aligning for it to come down and indictments to be delivered at some point in August. 
All right. Well, we'll have to keep our uh, eyes open for that. And this is about the phone call, right? That's what this indictment's um, surrounding? There's almost a 100% chance that that will, will be front and center in all of this. The big question right now, Joe, is, is how much more is going to, to get wrapped in and whether Donald Trump is going to be the only person who's indicted. May there be others? And I think that that's a very open question at this point. Uh, the, the answer very well could be yes, that he's not the only person who's going to be uh, involved and wrapped up in uh, a indictment that comes down. So I... I I'm reluctant to name other names and speculate who that might be, but I would just say that if it's Donald Trump and two other people or five other people or something of that sort, and if there there are not just one or two or three indictments, but five or ten or more than that, don't be surprised. Uh, This has been an investigation that's been going on for more than two years. It's been kind of torturous for those who have been following it and watching it, uh, trying to figure out what exactly has been going on in this investigation, but we we know one thing for better or for worse is that it has been exhaustive and thorough, and it does seem that the end is near as to how this is all going to play out, and uh, it's sort of the the you know the the end of the initial phase, and then we get into a whole different sort of legal phase from there, as we well know. All right. Speaking of Trump, let's go look at some of the stuff you guys are working on over at the Raw Story. Uh, speaking of Trump, the Trump RFK Jr. ticket, as called the ultimate MAGA Trojan horse, There's this is being discussed in the state of New Hampshire, Dave? Yeah, well, you know, RFK Jr. is uh, is has become quite a phenomenon uh, in his own right. Anytime you have the Kennedy name and you are part of the extended world of Camelot, you, you get attention. Now, RFK Jr. has jumped on the scene, and he's running against Joe Biden as a Democrat. Joe Biden is not going to lose <laughs> renomination here to RFK or Marianne Williamson or anyone else, but RFK Jr. definitely has played on some of the the fears about Joe Biden by disaffected Democrats who are not thrilled about a uh, octogenarian president running for re-election again, especially when they're not all that thrilled about Joe Biden, period. Uh, they like him more than Donald Trump, but they really wish somebody else was running, uh, any Democrat. And and then also to RFK, has kind of captivated the attention of some independents and even some Republicans in, in the sense that He's willing to say some things that are far outside the mainstream of the Democratic Party, uh, particularly as he talks about uh, government, talks about skepticism of everything from uh, legal issues to vaccines to health care. He's he's been compelling for some people. So as a result, one of our uh, columnists wrote a a very provocative uh, reported column about what that looks like in New Hampshire, where Arnie Arneson, the columnist who wrote the piece, uh, lives. And she she basically offered up a, an idea that RFK Jr. quite possibly could be very attractive to Donald Trump as a running mate uh, because of his cross-partisan appeal, at least to some extent, and definitely appeal to some independents. And uh, that uh, this would be something that uh, would be kind of straight out of Donald Trump's playbook for looking for something that was far outside of what would be considered, quote unquote, normal in politics, but maybe very expedient and even potentially very effective. Is that going to happen again? Who knows? But it's uh, it's definitely not only provocative, but uh, but very 
instructive to think about, uh, at least as it pertains to Donald Trump and his political future. You know, it's interesting, this, uh, you know, uh, multi-party ticket, it's something we had Joe Cunningham, former congressman, on last week talking about the no labels movement. And this is something they're looking at. They're going to make a decision after Super Tuesday if they go forward with a, you know, Democrat, Republican or Republican uh, Democrat ticket uh, to run in 2024. Seems like if, if Trump did this, he'd say, hey, look, I'm doing exactly what they're claiming to do. Right. And so it would, it would be a total curveball. It would be call it what you will, but it would be something, especially if uh, Donald Trump uh, felt like he was being betrayed by some Republicans or didn't want a, a, a more Washington traditional Republican, that he could do something that, that was far, far outside of uh, the expectations of the Republican Party and go with somebody who wasn't on paper a Republican. Pretty, uh, pretty fascinating to think about. Dave, uh, this one surprised me just because I didn't know this was a thing. Um, Fox News uh, Judge Jeanine Pirro, um, she's from the Five uh, on Fox. She had a Senate campaign. Now I don't remember her ever running for Senate, uh, but this former Senate campaign is not currently in 2023 breaking a law. <laughs> yeah, we we had to dig back into the history books for this one too. But she had a very brief campaign right in New York State. She was running for U.S. Senate against Hillary Clinton, uh, or ostensibly was going to be, but dropped out after several months uh, when her campaign really never caught fire. But the problem is, is that her campaign had a lot of financial troubles and still technically exists today, her campaign committee. And it's been refusing to respond to a variety of inquiries and messages from the Federal Election Commission here in Washington, D.C. They keep sending her old campaign inquiries and messages and uh, demanding that she respond to them and otherwise uh, provide information about uh, what has been a, a significant amount of debt that her campaign never paid off. And it's uh, just kind of a messy financial situation. And uh, her old campaign has gone complete radio silence here. So is she in violation of federal law? Yes, uh, as, far, <laughs> as far as the Federal Election Commission is concerned, yet uh, they're not actually taking the next step to do anything about it. They're somewhat limited in how far they want to press. They have limited resources. They could conceivably, technically, send it to the Department of Justice to look into for some sort of a criminal inquiry, but this seems to be pretty low down on their list. Anyway, uh, my colleague Mark Alicia here at Raw Story broke the news on that. Uh, we tried to reach out to her, got no response, but uh, it, it kind of underscores the idea that there are all sorts of these weird little legal you know, things that uh, oftentimes go on after a candidate is no longer a candidate. And, you know, last week, too, we found out on a sort of different note, too, and broke the news that uh, there was a Democratic congresswoman who failed to file required uh, disclosures about her stock trades, which is another thing that's been going on, too, Kathy Manning. And uh, so, you know, Republicans do this, Democrats do it. I mean, we're going to go after everyone if you're breaking the law. And, it uh, it sometimes flies under the radar, but it's very important when you elect somebody or you're putting your faith in a candidate to, you know, assume that they're going to be following the law as it is, especially if you're a law and order kind of candidate. And, you know, Judge, uh, Judge Neen, just uh, still about almost two decades later, is still dealing with this, at least at some level. You know, Dave, it's funny. You, We've done so many interviews together. You knew I'd have to even it out with the story of the Democratic congresswoman who also violated the law. I, I like how you threw that in there. 
Uh, oh, completely. And, and sometimes, you know, the, the, the Democratic candidates uh, or in this case, uh, actual members of Congress have been the ones who have uh, ignored some of these laws the most. So, you know, not trying to, to, to uh, have false equivalency here. In fact, this is very true equivalency. And both sides uh, are, are not following what uh, what the law is. And it's laws that are passed by members of Congress themselves to govern their own behavior. So if they can't follow it, well, you know, what what do we got going on here? These are laws by members of Congress for members of Congress, and they're also being ignored by members of Congress. Now, Dave, I could go down the rest of uh, this stuff, but I've already gotten an hour out of you. We've got to uh, wrap this up. But you sent me this very nice email with all these stories. Is there a way that our listeners can sign up for that email? Oh, sure. Uh, rawstory.com is uh, where our website is. And hey, you know, you, you can always email me directly. I love to hear from readers and definitely listeners and most importantly, Buffalonians. I'll give you my email address. It's just leventhal at rawstory.com. Be happy to communicate with anyone who would like to talk to me. Awesome, Dave. And uh, we will hear from you in just a couple of days at 6.50 Tuesday morning with Susan and Brian. We always look forward to that. And uh, always look forward to you here on Hardline, Dave. I hope you have a great Sunday afternoon. And thanks again for uh, giving me an hour of content. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. And go Bills. Go Bills. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on podcasts whatever you love hear it right here on TuneIn. go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening it's better over here. after investing billions to light up our network t-mobile is america's largest 5g network plus right now you can switch keep your phone and we'll pay it off up to 800 dollars see how you can save on every plan versus verizon and at&t at tmobile.com slash across america up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. 